Hi, this is John Fleck. You may remember me as Silic from Star Trek Enterprise and several other characters from The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and you are listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Today, we're chatting with John Fleck, who you may remember best as the leader of the Sulevans, Silic, from a whole bunch of episodes on Star Trek Enterprise. But before he became that ill-fated shapeshifter, he was also the Romulan Tybok on the TNG episode The Mind's Eye, as well as a Cardassian in the DS9 episode Homecoming, a Karema Trader in the DS9 episode The Search Part 1, the Romulan Koval in Deep Space Nine from the extremely long-titled Inter Arma and of Silent Legis, and the junk dealer Abaddon from the Voyager episode Alice. John also appeared in films and shows like The Naked Gun 2.5, Seinfeld, Howard the Duck, Pink Cadillac, Babylon 5, Carnival, Weeds, Max Hedrum, Northern Exposure, True Blood, and The Orville, just to name a few. While you may recognize him from his many roles he's had in Hollywood, you might not know so much about his theatrical career and his artwork. Fleck's mainstream roles helped support his performance art career, one that is very acclaimed, along with his time on stage. John has won four LA Critics Circle Awards, eight Dramalog Awards, and six LA Weekly Awards for his thought-provoking and often controversial performances. And speaking of, Fleck is one member of the NEA4, where he and three other artists filed a lawsuit against the National Endowments for the Arts that went all the way to the Supreme Court and has continued to have ramifications on the art world today. This subject is covered very in-depth in the new documentary by Kevin Duffy, John Fleck is Who You Want Him To Be, which we're also going to discuss in this interview. Speaking with Fleck is like having a conversation with a force of nature. He's a whirlwind of energy and ideas, highly expressive and emotive, and much like the title of his film implies, you never know which John Fleck you're talking to until it happens. He's a lot of fun to speak with and has a ton of great stories, and I think you're going to really enjoy the time we spent together. But before we jump into our interview, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? It's the best way to keep up to date on who's going to be the next guest on Trek Untold and to learn all about the other cool things that are happening here. So if you're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go ahead and look up Trek Untold, all one word, and give us a follow and a like. If you'd like to help support the show monetarily, go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to check out some of the merchandise we have available. This includes t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, sweatshirts, stickers, and a whole bunch more. So go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you become a paid subscriber to Trek Untold, you'll get first access to the show and a chance to ask our guests questions on future episodes. But most of all, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it or watching it. And if you've already done that, please also leave a review and a rating if you can. Leaving ratings and reviews helps increase the visibility of podcasts on platforms like iTunes and other places like it. It shows that you're listening and that you like it, and that other people who are interested in the same subject are going to probably like it too. It helps us grow, it helps us get better guests, and it helps us keep bringing this amazing Trek Untold show to you. If you're already following us or have supported us in any other way, thank you, of course, for being a part of the Trek Untold family. There is a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we're very grateful that you chose us to listen to. 
I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and replicas for fans of all ages and toys of all sizes. But you'll hear more about them a little later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold and Out. Joining us on the other side of the screen. Today we're joined by an actor and performance artist who is probably the only person to have gone toe-to-toe against Frank Drebin and Captain Jonathan Archer. And well, his characters didn't come out to tell the tale, but we've got the character actor today. Mr. John Fleck is joining us today. John, how are you? Fine. How are you? That's a good answer. It's a, <laughs> I am fine. Thank you. I'm glad we're all fine here because, you know, the world's a crazy place. So to be honest, Ooh. being fine is pretty good. Stranger than uh, science fiction, I'd say, the real world, huh? Jeez. So let's kick things off today with the first question I like to ask all of my guests. And that's, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Ah, my earliest memory. That's a trick question. My earliest memory of Star Trek. Huh. Well, I guess I really it goes back to the beginning, you know, with with you know um, uh, the originals, you know, Leonard Nimoy and those guys, and just uh, that was fun. It was uh, we we watched it every week. We had to watch it live time. We we had no you know no tapes back then. So uh, that that was my first experience with Star Trek. So were you really really big fan of it, or was it just kind of like it was on TV, it was just a thing to do? Uh, I was I a big fan. I I wouldn't say I was a crazy fan, but I was uh, um, I was pretty devoted. I think I watched every episode. So uh, and if I missed an episode over the course of the last fifty years, I'm sure I've caught up with the episodes that I've missed. Very good. So you grew up in Cleveland originally, right? Well, um, we moved a lot. I, I went to like eleven different schools, so primarily Cleveland. But my dad was a, a restless uh, a soul, so uh, you know, every other year a different school. Tell us, uh, I guess, a little bit of background information about yourself. Uh, since you mentioned you moved around a lot, I guess, kind of give us an idea of where John Fleck grew up, uh, who his parents were, what they did, and what you wanted to be when you grew up as a little kid. Oh boy! Well, you know, uh, I, I always kind of break my life down into okay, what grade was I? Because um, I remember fourth, uh, when I was four and five, I have no memories before four, but I, I used to stutter. I remember I had a horrible stutter and, um, uh, and, um, and then we moved, uh, when I was uh, fifth grade, we moved, uh, my father, we were in, uh, Cleveland, a suburb of Cleveland. And, uh, he packed up a trailer. We moved to California. He wanted to open a trailer court. And, uh, anyways, we came out here for about eight months and, um, and obviously uh, in Yucaipa, California, they didn't want a trailer court at the time. So we packed everything up and six kids and the family uh, drove back across country. And then my dad was, uh, he was a carpenter, uh, a house painter, and he could build houses. You know, one year he sold auto parts. He was just always, you know, never really grounded in terms of what he wanted to do. But hey, we always had food on the table. Um yeah, and he was a big drinking guy, and uh, you know, um, it's funny. My mother died of Alzheimer's um, several years ago, and um, in Cleveland, and I went back, and I was sitting uh, next to her bed uh, with a video camera. She always said, "Are you are you using that thing?" I go, "No, mom, I'm just cleaning it." But you know, nobody ever told us about our stories or where we grew up as a family. I, I have no idea even who my my grand my grandparents really were or before that you know with a, I was told they came my father's I came from Germany Hungary Yugoslavia you know and my mother was Irish and French but but anyways I got her to tell me some great stories and one of the great stories she told me was when I was five four or five 
he'd come home drunk uh, and she'd crawl, crawl into bed with me. It's funny, after she died, I had, anyway, I don't want to get too crazy here, but anyways, she'd crawl into bed with me and she just said, uh, if, if she could, why am I telling you these horrible stories? Matthew, what are you getting out of me? But anyways, the, 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 the good stuff. That she crawled into bed and he, like he couldn't, he wouldn't bother her or hurt her if she stuck with me. So anyways, me and my mom, we were, we were like this and, you know, um, growing up and uh, against the bully. But I got to say, as much as I hated my father all those years, he was the enemy. I can honestly say now in my ripe old age, I'm very thankful for the, for the life I had. And I can honestly say that I love my father and my mother very much. And I, I got a lot of skills from my father. You know, uh, one thing he, uh, you know, in between all his jobs, he always painted. And I got a, I, I got, I think a, a creative spark from him. And, uh, and uh, I, uh, he always encouraged me to, to dance. So uh, I, I learned how to dance. So, you know what? I got a lot from my father. Okay. I didn't answer any of your questions really, but anyway, we just kept moving, moving, moving. I went to Catholic school for a few years. I went to public school and, and I never acted. I, I, I um I tried to take an acting class. Uh, I was a business major. I wanted to be a, an accountant. That my my mother said I had to be an accountant, you know. So and I and I, I balanced my father's books when he when he worked and did you know construction and everything. So I learned learned numbers well really well. So I went to Cleveland State University, and uh, but I kept flunking uh, calculus, and uh, so I quit. And I had a, a girlfriend at the time. And uh, she was moving to California to go to acting school. She says, why don't you come out west and go to acting school? I never, I tried to take an acting class in college, but I was so terrified. I, I couldn't do it. I was too shy. But I came out here and bada bing, bada boom, something happened. I, I blossomed out here in California. Uh, and that was at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, right? Yes, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. I could have gone to New York or LA, but New York, as even though I was in Cleveland, New York scared me. So I drove my little VW bug out to California and uh, here I am. So there you are. Yeah. And uh, so what are some of the lessons that you learned? Maybe I should ask, what's the most important lesson that you learned that you continue to use throughout your career that you picked up at? Uh, I was going to say the acronym, but that's like a horrible acronym. It's like AADA. That sounds like the dentist union. So never mind that. But so so the question is, what what's one of the greatest lessons I've, I've learned? Let's say um, what's one of what's the most important thing you learned that you continue to use through your career? Oh, geez. Well, you know, one day at a time, you know, um, um, you know, like that old um, song, New York, New York, one day it's kicks and it's kicks in the shins. I don't know, just uh, to, to, to take one day at a time. And um, and t- my my lesson for today is not to base uh, my my worth on, um, you know, um, you know, the last uh, acting job I had or how much money I made and that uh, I'm a creative being and uh, I just just to be grateful for the, the creative gift. So that's kind of the greatest lesson that, that that's my life force, so to speak. So where does performing uh, performance art fit into this? Where does performance art fit into this? Well, one might say all of us are performance artists to some degree. Uh, but um, I, I, after I got out of the um, American Academy of Dramatic Arts uh, in 1976, um, you know, I started studying voice and dance. I, I was always a, you know, and studying, studying. And I had actually a four octave voice. I could really sing high counter tenor. And, uh, and uh, I was a good mover and shaker. Anyways, um, nothing was happening for me. I was auditioning for a little theater out here, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just feeling like, wow, where's my life going? But then I, I ended up getting somewhat into the punk movement in the, um, I guess, early 80s. It was kind of post-true punk, but I kind of riding the, the wave at the end. And uh, 
I uh, I used to hang out at this bar called the One Way in uh, in uh, Los An- uh, Los Angeles here in Silver Lake, and uh, it was uh, kind of a uh, some might say an S and M gay leather bar. I I but it's more, it was a punk place, and 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 they, they uh, a friend of mine was DJing there, and he just played the best music. You know, it's. It's where I, the first time I ever heard Susie and the Banshees or the Pretenders or even Blondie. It was just like, wow. Uh, and anyways, he would throw these events called theoreticals and uh, performance things. And he asked me to perform. And uh, and so uh, I, I was opening for Edie Massey. I don't know if you know Edie Massey from um, uh, John Waters' Pink Flamingos. She played the Egg Lady. <laughs> so I was opening for, he had all these, you know, freaks. And, and this was, you know, back in the day when everybody was tattooed. It was before, you know, those were the, the, the punks, you know, it wasn't, you know, nobody else was doing it. And they were rowdy, man. They'd throw bottles and just, ooh, you know. Um, so anyways, I remember I climbed on top of the bar uh, at the one way. Uh, Miss Edie Massey was off in the shadows there getting ready for her show. Uh, and uh, and I remember uh, I, I, I uh, you know, it was a punk club. So I, I pulled my pants down and I sang, there's no penis like show penis. And anyways, that got their attention. And nobody had thrown a bottle at me yet. So I started to sing a Puccini aria um, from Madame Butterfly, uh, Un Bel uh, Di Vedremo. And, uh, you know, I'm very... So, uh, and then uh, they loved it. So that was the beginning of my performance art career right there. And I, I, I really attribute that to saving my life and giving me a sense of community. And, uh, you know, I always felt like an outsider. And now I was kind of in with all the other outsiders. So it was a good thing. <laughs> and it was before I, I started doing any TV or film or anything. Uh, I really hadn't, uh, didn't have much desire to go into that. I just kind of wanted to be a you know, cutting edge artists. And I was okay being poor back then. You know, we, you didn't need a lot of money to live here in Los Angeles. I lived in Silver Lake up on a hill and I was paying like $95 a month for rent. And uh, of course, now that same place is almost $2,800 a month. <laughs> but those were the, the, the glory days. And uh, I just kind of kept doing shows and then other performance spaces would ask me to do stuff. And I kept studying with great people like Rachel Rosenthal and dance and voice and you know and writing and improv with the groundlings you know i always knew that because i did come out here to be an actor so uh uh and i don't know i just one day i i decided i'm gonna get an agent and i got an agent and uh started doing small parts and and um you know my first uh video thing I ever did was I think in ZZ Top's Legs, uh, that MTV video. That was my first thing. We talked about overacting 101, but uh, I did that. And then, uh, oh, I did Howard the Duck. Uh, that was, I think, my second one. And that was a pretty big movie. That was, you know, George Lucas, you know, up, up in San Francisco. And yeah, I was going to ask about Howard the Duck. In fact, cause you were uh, Pimples in that film, right? I was, uh, yes, Mr. Pimples. Yes, yes. Uh, and, what a uh, surreal film that is, too, just in general. <laughs> did you ever see it? How I, I have. It is, yeah, oh, it's, it's my okay. girlfriend's favorite movie. Also, it's like one of her favorites. And when she, when she found out I was interviewing you, she's like, oh, Suleban's cool, but he's pimples. <laughs> <laughs> Forever pimples. Funny. Well, one thing I learned, you know, me never having a pot to pee and they, they flew me up to San Francisco. And we shot it and they paid me. Boy, God, that was Hollywood money, you know. I mean, now I look at it, I go, it wasn't that much, but for me back then, it was a lot. Anyways, I came back, and a month later, they said, oh, the sound was all bad, so we had to go back and shoot it again, and I got paid twice, and I go, wow, I like this Hollywood stuff. And then, 
I think in about 19, I don't know when my first Star Trek thing was, about 1990-ish, somewhere around there. Yeah, and then uh, and then from there, they just, um, I remember David Livingston, he was a, one of the director creators of um, uh, Star Trek, which which incarnation was it? Oh, um, uh, The Next Generation. Uh, so my first one was The Mind's Eye. I should know my date, the years that I did that. I think it was 1991. And they, they liked me and they started, David Livingston especially, and he kept offering me different parts. So I got to play all these different, well, you know, characters, which was wonderful. And there you are. That's here I am today. Okay. Next question. Before we jump too deep into Star Trek, because there's a lot to get through, uh, I, I actually wanted to ask you about one other thing. That's something I alluded to at the start of the show. And that's you were in Naked Gun two and a half, and you got to do a scene with Leslie Nielsen. I, I love hearing Leslie Nielsen's stories. So please, I hope you must have a great, pretty great one for your scene with him. Oh, God. You know, it's all a blur. You know, most of these times, you, you never even meet the, the stars, okay? You, you come in, you barely have a rehearsal. It's just pretty much for blocking, okay? You do it, you do it, you know, five times. Well, I don't think I ever said more than five words to him, you know? Uh, so I don't have any great, um, any stories. But wow, what an honor to work with him, you know? Jeez. Um, sorry to, to be a disappointment. Uh, I don't have any stories. I could make up one, though. I believe he it was, if you did. I mean, he's, I've heard he a lot of wacky been, things about him. He was very inappropriate. He behaved very inappropriately with me. No, I'm not teasing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't even remember what we did. I don't even remember the scene. <laughs> oh, the scene is, uh, it's, it's, he's interrogating a bunch of, uh, I guess, the bad guys. And most of them are all knocked out and beat up on the floor. And like one of them, he shakes and is like trying to get information. He's like, nope. And he dies. And he goes up to you and he's trying to get information. He's shaking you down. And he like says, I'm like, you know, you low life scum. He's like, well, if that's your attitude. And then you just die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got to say, you know, back in the day when I was doing um, a TV and film, I always thought, oh, you know, this is just a money job. And I just I, I you know, it's not really, you know, my art craft, so to speak. Uh, so I just kind of in and out. Just I never even watched him on TV. I never saw Naked Gun until reruns. Like most of my Star Treks I've never seen either. So I. Uh, bad actor maybe i could have been more successful had i been paying more attention i don't know well that actually answers one of my questions in fact that's a common thing is i like to ask folks if they actually watch the performances on star trek so you, are you typically a person that doesn't watch the things that you've been in well you know i've been doing it for so long you know back in the day we had no streaming you know and if you if you missed it on live tv i i didn't own a television set until mm, geez probably about uh 1994 you know i just didn't have one so i didn't know you know and uh and i gotta say i think my life was a little more focused back then but um but now um when i'm on it i'll i'll watch it and then i never watch it again i don't know i have a hard time watching myself but i'm a little more objective i guess i couldn't be as objective before and i just never watched myself well, let's see if I can refresh your memory a little bit about oh, some of the Trek appearances, because there are like way, way, way too many. I mean, basically, there's stunt performers who have been, you know, hundreds of characters of the show. And there's like John Fleck, who's among one of the like, what, three actors who has been in like as many roles as you've had who had actually speaking lines, which is pretty insane in itself. Um, but yeah, let's no. just start actually TNG. Your first thing is season four, The Mind's Eye, and you got to play a Romulan. Um, but before you were cast as that very first Romulan, had you auditioned previously for Star Trek? Oh, good question. Let me think about that. What do you even know? What year that was that I played um, uh, the Romulan character? I, I think that, that was uh, ninety three. I want to say Koval wasn't my name. Koval. Koval was uh, uh, 
Ty, Ty, so this one's Taiba. Koval is only did in DS9. You were close. Yeah. No, you're back. <laughs> um, that was 93. That had I auditioned for, you know, I might have auditioned for one or two. I don't remember. But I, I remember I just got my, uh, my, my big agent, you might say, that's really started getting me work around 90, 91. So I may have auditioned for Star Trek a couple of times before I landed this, but I don't remember what. But but like I said, once I got that, I, all of a sudden it started happening. You know, um, I guess I fit the uh, physicality that they wanted, and uh, you know, I got that little reptilian quality that they love for these parts. <laughs> Was that your first time doing heavy prosthetics? Yes. And, and it wasn't that heavy. Yeah, when I look at uh, my life in uh, retrospect, that was pretty light prosthetics. But yeah, in terms of the ears and the forehead, yeah, that was probably the heaviest prosthetics I'd ever done up to that day. And so your character, Taba, he's pretty interesting because he is a Romulan who is interrogating and torturing Jory LaForge, played by LeVar Burton. So you got to do some scenes with LeVar uh, in this uh-huh. bizarre torture chamber. I don't know if you remember that as well. Uh, do you I, have any I, memories of, of LeVar and, and that horrible, horrible torture chamber? Um, well, I remember LeVar was tired and, and he had to wear those contacts. And, you know, I, I, um, I, he was... <laughs> He was not happy about all the times that he had to uh, take him in and out. You know, I remember, and it kind of added to his, maybe maybe he's a method actor. I don't know how he works, but it added to his frustration in the scene. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I was a, a, just a, a shy guy, you know, and I never, God, I wish I had been more a little like, oh, hey, you know, da, 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 da. I, I, like I just never wanted to intrude. So, you know, I just show up respectfully and thank you and, um you know, it's funny, um, an unrelated story in, in terms of, um, uh, I remember working on um, Pink Cadillac, uh, Clint Eastwood uh, directed that, and uh, I, I had a scene, and uh, and um, in the background, there's some guy on stage contorting, contorting, and it turns out to be Jim Carrey, it was his, like, one of his first roles, he had no lines, he was just like a contortionist, and at lunch, I remember, I'm very shy, like, oh, you know, the, the all the stars, Clint, and they're sitting at one table, well, oh, you know, I'm too shy, so I go to the next one. But I see uh, Jim Carrey, you know, just an extra in the background, just goes, sits right next to Clint Eastwood and starts talking, I go, damn, man, he had balls. So, uh, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda, uh, but uh, just shy little Johnny, you know, just showed up and did the best that he could and then and left the set, you know. You get to see at all Patrick Stewart or Jonathan Frakes, Brent Spiner, anybody else, or even Michael Dorn in the makeup chair? Or how, what was your shoot? No. Do you remember much but, of it? Well, you know, when you shoot, it's just, you know, you're in the boom, makeup boom, boom. The trailer with, you know, uh, the, the person you're shooting the scene with. So I never saw any of the other other leads in that, um, in that particular genre of um, Star Trek. No. That was my only next, uh, that was next generation, right? Yeah, yeah that was next gen, yeah. And so this is going to be a common question I ask you also, and that's about the costume you wore. And I don't think I've actually spoken to anybody who's been a Romulan previously. Uh, so uh-huh. how was that outfit? Was it constricting to you? I mean, obviously you're wearing all this makeup, which can't be easy either, but how was right. that costume to go along with it? Well, uh, you know, I'd say uh, for all the Star Trek costumes, they're very form fitting and, you know, you got to make sure you uh, suck in your gut, you know, and stand up straight. There's no slouching in outer space. And, uh, you know, I just learned tricks of the trade, you know, uh, 
you know, how to position your chin, you know, to keep your chin down. So your eyes open big, you know, especially when you're wearing contact lenses and stuff like that. And I don't know what angles work good and, and how to, you know, even though it's you're you're a human playing an alien, you, you, there are certain ways of moving that conveys otherworldliness. But um, in terms of that one particular part, um, 1993. I mean, do you were you even born in 1993, Matthew? I, I was around. Yeah, I, I actually around. I barely remember the episode. I'm rewatching a lot of TNG again today. It's like all new to me, even though I was watching it as a kid. So it's it's kind of fun okay. to relive in that regard. Jeez, I, I, yeah, I. Uh, can't remember, but I, I kind of remember it was a grayish kind of yep. shiny. Big shoulder pads. Yeah, big shoulder pads. Very uh, dynasty kind yeah. of Joan Collins uh, from that <laughs> era. Uh, but yeah, I always remember that tight fitting. And if there were full body shots, you always had to wear a dance belt because there are no bulges, no male bulges in outer space. No, no reference to any sexual um, identity, so to speak. We'll talk more about your bulges in a little bit, but uh, I want to follow up now with your second Trek appearance, Deep Space Nine. You're in the season two premiere, Homecoming, and that one, I'll, I'll help refresh your memory here. So this one, uh, you did the scene with Nana Visitor and Cole Meany, and you guys are in an outdoor shoot, which I imagine was probably like Vasquez Rocks or somewhere around there. Right, right. And you're a Cardassian. I remember that day. It was so fucking, it was, yeah, I don't know if you're allowed to say those words on this. Well, it's too late now. <laughs> it's too late now. Uh, it was so friggin' hot that day. I remember I was in the trailer, and I remember going out there with all this makeup, and you're just dripping underneath, which frustrates all the makeup artists because your, your prosthetics are always coming loose. So every 10 minutes, oh, we got to, you know, glue it back in. And I remember um, <laughs> Nana Visitor, um, uh, I had the scene and, and the, the terrain, I think I'm wearing contacts. You can't see, you know, it's just, it's all a blur. And I kept tripping. And I remember her, I could see her barely out of the corner of my eye, kind of laughing, <laughs> you know, trying to be respectful, but just like, Oh, how, how awkward uh, I was. And we had to do take after take. It was so, um, so hot and frustrating, but we did it. I don't even remember what we did, but I do remember that the paycheck, um, because I worked like like eighteen hours, it just took so long um, that I I made like seven times more money than what I would have made. And I go, yes, this is why we love unions. And thank you, Hollywood. Thank you, Star Trek, for giving the actors so many long days too. Oh, you know, hey, you know, I, I often tell people I, I made a career out of playing non-human beings, and uh, but you know, they they pay well uh, for you to play non-human beings. So hey, bring it on. So that scene is with Nana and Colm, and basically they're trying to get into this uh, prisoner of war camp, essentially. And so basically Colm is Kira's uh, pimp, more or less. That's the most polite way to put it. And he's trying to get her in so they can shut down their shield barrier. So uh, I think you decide to check out the merchandise, which is when Kira like high punches you in the face and you go flying, or at least a stunt person does. But that's the scene. Do you, do you remember much about that? I don't remember any of the scene. Thank you uh, for telling me the scene. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I know. I don't remember that at all. I blacked out. I think it was so hot and I was hyperventilating under all that makeup. I remember just, it was a big facial thing that I wore. What was I, a Kardashian? No, what was that? I mean, Kardashians are pretty hideous. This was a Kardashian, so not quite as horrible oh. looking. <laughs> I wasn't a Kim Kardashian? Thankfully, no. no. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I'm looking at myself here and I see I have a, a little uh, thing. You know what? I, I, I'm writing this new show and I, I'm creating a COVID uh, helmet for myself. I'm going to put a little COVID spice on here. I'm going to become Captain COVID. But every time I put it on my head, oh my, I can't do it with my glasses. I, every time I put it on my head, that the hole's not big enough. I keep scratching, scratching my nose. So, so see. The hole's not big enough. Quote John Fleck, 2021. <laughs> I need a bigger hole. <laughs> okay. Let's jump to another DS9 episode. And this time around, you were a Karaman trader named Orenthar. Uh, and you're on the Bridge of the Defiant. This character, I know that the name probably means nothing. But this guy has even more of a nightmarish makeup. He has kind of like a crest across his face. Do you remember that? Jesus. I remember that was the, uh, I think the first time I didn't have to audition. Uh, David Livingston offered it to me. Oh, I like getting offers like this. It's nice. Um, other than that, I I remember nothing. Who who, who did I have my scene with? Uh, you were with pretty much most of the Bainbridge crew. So you were with Avery Brooks. You were with Armin Shimmerman. Uh, Terry Farrell was there. Uh, Rene Albert-Janois was there. I don't actually recall off the top of my head if Nana was there too, but it was a lot of the main crew. Wow. Um, I remember Renee in the makeup trailer and just him, him saying something effective, welcome, welcome to the torture chamber. Cause you know, he had all that makeup uh, put on and, uh, you know, three hours later I was ready to go out there, but he was a nice guy. You know, I, I remember Armin too. It's funny, you know, that they're, they're both theater people. And I gotta say, you know, I, I've always, there's something about the community of theater people that seem to be more, I don't know, human and welcoming than just TV film people. Um, I don't know, that, 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 that they kind of had a more personal connection with me and I with them. No, there's definitely something there. I mean, I've spoken with Armin. I've spoken with a lot of actors who have done Star Trek, who were uh, classically trained, have done Shakespeare, have done a lot of theater work. And there is kind of uh, a different quality around them. It kind of reminds you of a story I hear a lot with the Golden Girls. You'd have B. Arthur, who was from the theater world. So she was very kind of more closed off, more internal. And you had Betty White, who was outgoing. She was shaking hands with the audience. So there's definitely some kind of difference there between the TV and theater worlds. Right. I think a lot of TV film actors, they just show up and, you know, whereas theater, it's, it's a more organic thing. and It's more a human experience. Yeah. So you just, you enjoy the process of discovery more. I think most uh, in TV film, it's just show up, you know, like usually you don't even get a rehearsal and, you know, you shoot it. Whereas uh, I think theater piece, people like to feel the uh, organic process a little bit more of humanity and kind of emotions and stuff like that. So let's talk about that role, uh, the other Romulan role you had, Koval, which we mentioned a little bit earlier on. That was from, uh, I think, your last DS9 appearance, in fact. And uh, in that one, that episode name, really stupid long. I'm not going to say it, but you did get to work with Adrian Barbeau. Do you, did you ever have, have any time with her on set? Um, I don't remember Adrian much from that set, but, you know, we, she and I worked together on Carnival, that HBO series. And we got to bond there. In fact, uh, she's been over to my house a couple of times for parties during that time. So I, I love Miss uh, Barbeau. She, she's a, a nice, kind lady. But I, from from back then, I don't have any memories, you know, of her or even what character she played. Okay. She was also a Romulan, yeah. <laughs> she was a Romulan as well. Okay. Now I'm wondering, too, I've heard this from another actor who uh, basically played the same alien twice. They literally reused his prosthetic. Now, since you were a Romulan before, did they still have to recast you or do they just happen to find yours in the archive somewhere and be like, here you go? 
I think there was enough time in between. They had to refit me and do the whole thing. Yeah. They don't hold on to them too long. Unless they know you're a recurring character, you know, then they'll hold on to it. So I had to go the straws in the nose, you know, do the whole thing again. This episode too, amongst all your Star Trek appearances outside of Enterprise is the most dense amount of dialogue you had to do. Now, uh, do you remember having to learn all those lines? Was it a challenge? Ooh, that was like the courtroom scene. Yep, that's the like court one, yeah. Uh, I do remember that very well. And I was thinking, wow, this is like a little Shakespearean scene in a Star Trek. And I was like, okay, there's a lot of dialogue, a lot of technical, technical dialogue, you know? So, uh, but damn it, I did it. And I was proud of myself for doing it. And they were happy and I was happy, but I do distinctly remember that. I go, hey, I'm finally getting to act a little bit on, on a TV show. So it felt, um, felt rewarding in that way. That's definitely a good one. Yeah, it's definitely one of the more memorable ones outside of Silic. Um, but yeah, last thing before we go over to talk about Silic, in fact, uh, and that's your Voyager appearance in the episode, Alice, your Abaddon. He was a fast-talking salesman. He owns a junkyard. Uh, a lot of crazy makeup in that one. A lot of fast-talking lines. Do you recall that one? With Kate Mulgrew, right? Yep, with Kate Mulgrew, yep. Ah, what, one thing I remember, uh, one scene we were shooting, it was very late, and Kate, <laughs> Kate was... Tired and the camera. We had some, uh, it was a tricky shot where I had to fall and the camera had to follow me, and Kate had to come in. And, and Kate was having a bad day. She kept her shoes, and she, I guess she had rubber, rubber soles that was like carpeting or to, to buffer my fall or something. And she kept tripping and she, she got so frustrated and so angry. I remember that poor dear. But, anyways, we did it. She was, she was nice to me. She was just kind of like, oh, let's just get on with this. You know, sometimes, you know, you do a scene and then you spend an hour or two just for a teeny little, you know, shot because they can't, the camera can't pick it up. Um, it can be frustrating. But, anyway, you got to use that energy into the, what you got but uh other than that i do remember um fast talking uh like the, the salesman just a fast talking comment in a way so that was fun that was uh, a bit of a, a little lighter a little lighter character uh on star trek i like that it kind of felt to me like this was like the john waters version of an alien in star trek ha <laughs> ha right right yeah yeah it wasn't so uh, <laughs> and you know i find it kind of interesting too you know we're talking about who john fleck is and that's related to your documentary title maybe we'll get to that a little bit later on too but uh you know looking at the characters you played in star trek up to this point they basically are two different types there's the very introverted characters like the rhymelands who are very emotionless and then you've got characters like abaddon and you've got Orenthar from the ds9 episode he don't remember as well who are just way more extroverted way more outgoing uh, a lot more hand movements a lot more energy so i found it kind of interesting that you're playing these very different types of characters well hey i'm uh you know um a trained actor who's capable of drama and comedy. And uh, I really appreciated that they let me have that range of, uh, you know, characterization in this. Uh, and uh, at first I, I poo-pooed it like, oh, nobody's going to recognize me. Nobody knows me. But uh, you know what? If I look at it from a pure acting um, point of view, I, I man, what what great training. I mean, you, I, you God, I, t I couldn't have paid enough to take a class that would have taught me as much as that, that, that I learned doing that. So, uh, yeah, so uh, it's fun to be scary. It's fun to be, fun, you know, comedic and all things considered. So what, what a gift. What a gift that was. Thank you, David Livingston, for giving me so many opportunities. And uh, Rick Berman, too. He was uh, and uh, Brandon Braga um, from, um, you know, 
Uh, actually, I, I just worked with Brandon um, on um, the Orville. He's the Orville. Uh, one of the executive producers on the Orville. So, hey, Star Trek Legacy still lives on. They still bring me in for, for other <laughs> And I'm glad you brought that up. Fact, I was going to ask about it later, but since you mentioned it, uh, you know, yeah, you were on the Orville in season two, and uh, again, you're doing again heavy prosthetics. Uh, you're this weird vampire-looking alien called the Krill. It's kind of like a cross between Jem Hadar and vampires in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. Uh, how did you enjoy working with Seth and that crew, Seth McFarlane? Uh, you know, I gotta say, Seth is I I, I love Seth. Just what a a nice, kind, humble person. You know, you know, I actually got to do two more episodes. We shot um, uh, last. Uh, we got in right under the wire. Uh, we shot last uh, February, March. In fact, um, the day after we finished shooting, um, like three days later, L.A. went into a lockdown. So we got that. But then they had to shut down all production. So um, um, supposedly they started up uh, um, shooting more episodes of uh, season three. But now that L.A.'s um, production shut down again. So they're they're thinking uh it'll hopefully um you know the season will be released sometime by the end of 2021 but who the hell knows you know trek untold will return momentarily trek untold is brought to you by triple fiction productions if you're a star trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves triple fiction productions has you covered Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died with pancreatic cancer 24 years ago. They opened him up, they diagnosed, they said, you've got six months to live. And that was it. He died four months later. And at that time, there was a 3% survival rate. Since then, we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10%. But a dear friend of mine and probably all of yours, Kitty Swink, is one of those 10%. She has survived pancreatic cancer for 17 going on 18 years. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States with a five-year survival rate. That's just 10%. And more than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. More than 48,000 will die from the disease because symptoms are often vague and be hard to detect. That's why I'm supporting the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. 
PANCAN is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PANCAN drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support our important mission by donating today at pancan.org. Thanks for your time. We now return to Trek Untold. Now, John, before we talk about Star Trek Enterprise, I want to discuss with you another very important event that happened in your life, and that's you were part of the NEA4, which uh, is basically the NEA stands for National Endowment for the Arts, and you and three other artists had your grants vetoed in 1990 by a man who said that your work was offensive. So uh, let's spend a little bit of time chatting about that. Uh, the NEA, we became the NEA4, me and three other performance artists, uh, well, the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, back in the old days, uh, uh, my, my uh, experience happened in 1990. Um, in 1989, I, was, uh, I had a show I was doing called Blessed Are All the Little Fishes. Uh, anyways, uh, I won't go into details. But a friend said, why don't you apply for a National Endowment for the Arts grant? You know, So I did. And it was for like $5,000. And, uh, and uh, I got it. And surprise, surprise. And... Uh, one and then in June of 1990, I remember I was um, doing um, a show in an AIDS hospice here in Los Angeles called the Chris Brown the AIDS Hospice. I had gotten a, a couple of thousand dollars from the city, part of the um, Los Angeles City Cultural Affairs um, Department, uh, and I got it to perform to create a show and uh, do a performance at uh, the AIDS Hospice, and I did, which was a surreal experience. And then, anyways. Uh, I got home and uh, these were in the days before cell phones, uh, 1990. And uh, I saw I had like 26 messages on my voice answering machine. And it was like, oh, CNN and the New York Times. And, and they're going, we, can you comment? Uh, the National Endowment uh, for the Arts just um, rescinded your grant. You and three other performance artists uh, based on because we were too controversial and too sexual or whatever. Um, and uh, I, I didn't even know. I, I just heard that. Oh, I didn't even know I had gotten the grant. Oh, they, I had gotten it that day. And then they took it away the same day. And, you know, Senator Jesse Helms uh, was, uh, you know, very behind that. Because uh, um, us performance artists, I mean, three of us were gay. One was, um, one was a woman. Uh, she was uh, somewhat of a, what would you describe her? A feminist, revolutionary tear it apart kind of gal. Um, but our themes were too um, sexual and um, controversial. And uh, so uh, they decided that the National Endowment got worried because of all the political um, blowback from Dana Rohrabacher here in California and a bunch of other conservative lawmakers. And then the church started getting involved. And so they took away our grants. And then uh, we um, we went to the Supreme Court. We, we you know, we got a bunch of... Uh, a lawyers, Lawrence Tribe, and you know um, the Center for Constitutional Rights behind us. We went to the Supreme Court, and we won, uh, um, and, and we got our grants back. Um, and uh, there, we were fighting for that. You know, how do you, how, how do you, I don't know, put morality into into artwork? You know, because one man's profanity is another man's philosophy. I mean, it's, it's hard to say 
what's moral and moral. And all of us, we thought we were doing the morally right thing. We were fighting for justice, for equal rights, for for gays, for for women. I don't know, just to open up our mind's eye, you know, going back to Star Trek reference there. Um, so anyways, we won our grants. Uh, actually, we got several hundred thousand. Of course, you know, we only got, I only got 5,000 and the, the lawyers got like, uh, you know, 400,000. But hey, it was the principal. And, uh, but then the NEA said uh, after uh, it was all done, oh, excuse me. Oh, but it was during the Clinton administration. And um, I felt like uh, they were throwing a bone to the conservatives and they said that, okay, um, that they're going to eliminate the uh, genre that we were funded. It was uh, called new genre, uh, new genre performance. So they, they eliminated that from the national endowment. And they also said that uh, issues of morality can be considered when you give funding. Um, so it was a, you know, a, a blessing and a kind of a curse at the same time. A lot of people blame us for uh, the fact that, uh, that they lost funding in the future <laughs> because of the NEA four. But anyways, Hey, got a lot of uh, publicity from it. Uh, and, uh, and I gotta say after that, I started uh, working in Hollywood a lot. So, uh, you know, uh, I guess any press is good press, even if it's bad press sometimes. Anyways. You know, the topic of censorship has been a pretty hot one in the arts world, just overall for the past four years we've had in this country. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting case still to this day, because we're looking at, let's say, uh, Let's take a trip back in time. Let's talk about the paintings by Goya, which are very politically charged and oftentimes very violent. And back then they would be controversial. Today, you know, the stuff that you were doing, it's a different kind of level. Things have progressed. But, uh, you know, it's like for a government to say what is okay, what is not. It's definitely some interesting ground we're, we're covering here. You got to be careful with that. I mean, you know, even like, you know, in the visual arts, like Alexander Calder with his mobiles, you know, and various shape, that was considered like too controversial to fund at one time. It was, not that it was obscene or anything, but it was considered bad art. And now, you know, what was considered a travesty and bad art now is like, ooh, you know, it's in museums around the world. So, uh, um, yeah. So, yeah, it's censorship is a, is a, is a, curious thing a lot of your performance art was very much sexually charged at the time uh and it seems like i mean i'm sure a lot of it was very autobiographical a lot of those decisions you made in those pieces were informed by what happened with you growing up and things like that it's it's definitely a very thin line that you're walking here because there is so much stuff like again we're talking about you reading uh passages from the bible that are written on toilet paper while you're peeing where does art fit into i guess controversy you know like these two things go together but how do you balance these two things without going way over the top well, you know, like I said, I, I started performing in punk clubs. So I was always into the, uh, I like the shock and awe and the um, kind of primal extreme experiences, you know, and I'm, I think of um, artists that have kind of really gotten to me as the ones that I just, uh, oh, I, where I feel a lot of, like, you know, I, I remember seeing like Karen Finley perform where he's just like, you start pounding on the table. I don't even know what's coming over me, but she's, she's like channeling. Uh, I mean, not that she's a shaman or anything, but like, like, like you're channeling a primal energy and you can't really put it into words, but it taps into something. So I always like to feel, I like to go as far as I could back in the early days. I've really toned down as I've gotten older. Maybe I'm censoring myself now, who knows, but back in the, the early days, no, it was about doing something that, oh God, oh God, oh no, 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 you shouldn't do that. But whoa, whoa, whoa. And you're like, oh, our heads are blown off the top of us. And yes, this is a, a communal feeling. And it's, you're, you're expressing something that you really can't put into words, but something that is universal. And it's just like getting us all just 
worked into a frenzy. And, and not just for frenzy's sake or shock's sake. I, I like to think that I was kind of like, like, like channeling negative energy and creating something positive, that there was something on the other side of this action that I created that was transcendent in a way and kind of I always felt my work is at is as much as I spit and because back in the 80s you know for us performance artists it was all about our bodies you know I was always running around naked and you know I, I used spit as a like a lighting effect you know in the light it created a beautiful mist around you so you know and, and, and my urine yes it was shocking and I know it would get shocking it and when I read the bible you know while I'm doing that I, I knew it would get shocking but I was also thinking well why can't you read a Bible and have a miracle? I was creating, I was experiencing a miracle, you know? Um, and so just questioning, well, why does a miracle have to be, you know, just like, well, where flowers bloom and, you know, a woman comes floating in with the robe. Why, why can't we experience miracles in different ways? <laughs> does that make any sense? I think it does. Yeah. I mean, okay. <laughs> It kind of leads to my follow-up too, though, is, you know, a lot of your work is very much in your face. It's very loud in a lot of ways, if you will. Like, you know, uh, you did a series of paintings, which is basically, you know, you got paints on your butt and you sat down. That's, that was a gallery show. Yeah, we're going back for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's very much uh, about being very visceral, very guttural uh, and very loud, I guess. And I don't mean loud in a negative way, but, you know, your, your message is very clear what you want to get through. So right. uh, why does John Fleck choose to go as loud as he is, as opposed to other artists who would go more subtle, more pull back, more refrained? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it's funny you should mention that. I feel like I'm going a little more t in the subtle rain these days. In the 80s, I was loud. It was, a, it was a nuclear explosion. Where did they come from? Probably from years of growing up, never expressing one friggin' feeling in my life and just kind of keeping it all bottled up and trying to be what daddy wanted me to be and what society wanted to me to be. And now... Here I am in the late 80s and just like, wow, there's all this expression. I mean, it was an expressive time. You know, AIDS was running rampant in my community. You know, Ronald Reagan and the administration, they would not uh, talk about it. There was all this condemnation from religious, religious conservatives about, you know, homosexuality. And this is payback time. And, and there was just rage. And uh, so uh, I, uh, I channeled it. And like I said, not just to, not just to, you know, just to tear it apart, but also to 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 break open and to to free free. Oh God, to to, to heal. I mean, I, to me, it was very healing personally, and I think for a, a lot of my audience, you know, it was a a healing cathartic experience that we needed to feel and be part of at that time. So. Um, yeah, they were loud, messy, sloppy. And uh, but as, as it's funny, as the 90s began to progress and I started doing more film TV, I started bringing video into uh, into my pieces and playing much many more characters and created more of a, a plot lines. Uh, before it was just a, a behavioral um, kind of cathartic boom, explosions. And uh, now I was getting more into stories and- uh, Kind of like Mad Women, women uh, which oh, you have the poster right, right behind you. Oh, oh, you know, I can't even, didn't even think about that. This one, uh, Bill Viola. Do you know Bill Viola, this great video artist? Um, God, he's in all the museums. But anyways, I got to be one of his- uh, model so to speak and uh, he even signed this we had a big thing at the getty thing and uh, uh at the getty center here in la um but it just i just found out 
uh, he has Alzheimer's and he doesn't even know who he is anymore. So, uh, you know, sad. Um, anyways, I've gotten off, gotten off course. So there you go. I, mean, I found it interesting how you talked at the start of this interview about your toxic relationship with your parents, uh, with your father. But, you know, again, talk about what you just talked about now. It's like you got through that catharsis to get where you are today, where you can acknowledge that there were bad times, but you got something out of it as well. And all these things have kind of built up to this momentum of here you are today, 2021. You've got this new direction in your artwork, new direction for John Fleck. So definitely been, I guess, an evolution, right, for yourself? Well, yeah, you know, I ain't no spring chicken. Boy, I'm, I'm a survivor here. I'm going to be 70 years old in May, you know? I know I don't look a day over 68, but, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm very aware of, of back then and now and what's coming. I don't know, but uh, I'm very aware, especially after seeing that do- documentary that you made on your, your uncle, Hank. Um uh, that, that really moved me a lot and just made me aware that here I am and I'm still creating artwork and I don't know, I'm not making a lot of money uh, with it, but you know, I made enough money in, in Hollywood and I've invested wisely. I don't need to make money right now. So I'm, I'm just focusing on art creativity for creativity's sake. And, uh, and um, you know, I, not that I'm religious, but that I have a, a kind of a little, meditative prayer I do every morning. How, how can I be of service to my creative higher power? And, and before it had to be, you know, my, that bar was really high. I had to do this. I had to get, you know, I had to make money with that. I had to get a lot of attention. And now my bar is much lower. I'll tell you, even going in the front yard and planting a, a flower is a creative act. So, uh, but I just, but just with that in my being, I, I just find, whoo, a lot of creativity in my life is happening all of a sudden. I'm just saying, yes, I'm just saying yes. So, um, and I'm not putting a lot of like, Oh, I got to get money. I need this. I need this. And just, just letting it be what it is. I think that's a good summation of what creativity is. It's really about bringing something to life and saying, yes, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Well, there you have it. I mean, improv one-on-one, just say yes. You'd say yes. Uh-huh. Ask me a question so I can say yes. <laughs> well, let's get back on Star Trek, shall we? Oh, sure. Yes. There you go. There you go. All right, good. You're paying attention. You're paying attention. Uh-huh. Okay. So yeah, so let's, let's talk about Enterprise because that is basically your longest role as the same character throughout the franchise. You are Silic from the Sulaban. Uh, I just rewatched all of your episodes, in fact, as Silic, so I got to see the entire story play out once again. Oh my God, you are a glutton for punishment. <laughs> you know, watching season one of Enterprise is a punishment in itself, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I got to watch... <laughs> All your appearances, quite a ride you had as a character, but let's just start at the beginning. Uh, and, you know, as an actor, I'm just wondering, you know, a lot of folks create backstories for their characters. For someone like Silic, did you ever approach it that way? Did you create a backstory or, or did you just kind of take the role as it was and run with it, run with what they gave you? I think the essence for, for Silic was I was going to prove to, um, to Scott Bakula, <laughs> to John, to John. What was his last name? John Archer? No, Jonathan John. Archer. Yep. Jonathan Archer. You called him John in the show. Silic never said Jonathan. You always called him John. I was going, it was, it was who was going to win the the game here. And I was going to prove that we aliens or we Sudaban were much more intelligent than any humans. And it was quite the little chess game. I always felt like I was playing chess with John and I was going to be on top course i always ended up on the bottom i mean we don't have to go into these uh, we just talked about your bulges john we only have an hour here 
<laughs> but I, you know, I do remember distinctly uh, working with Scott and just what a gentleman he, he was and so kind. And hey, once again, he came from the theater world, you know, um, uh, what, a, what a sweet, kind man, but uh, and very professional. And uh, but it was fun. It, it was fun. It's nice to have an arc, you know, where you can kind of play uh, with. And, uh, yeah, so that so in terms of backstory, oh, geez, you know. Uh, I can't remember if I, I, I try to ground it as much, you know, reality and in, in so much as my imagination can conjure just so it's not just an actor saying words, but, uh, you know, I always feel with, you know, with these, um, aliens, like, uh, like backstory is like millions and millions of years of evolution and oh, what, what, what emotions everything is different you know but the primary thing was to to win so to speak uh win the game now did you do a lot of makeup tests for silic before they settled on what they went with hmm. i don't remember a lot of makeup tests i mean i do remember you know the the color you know for the camera we had to do there was some adjusting during the first day i don't know if we if they did a camera tests before i know when i was doing carnival for gecko god they did a lot of uh, pre you know shoot camera tests but for um silic i just remember i mean they had the prosthetics it was all i mean that was the most the thinnest prosthetic that i'd ever used so it really showed my face off before the other ones it was a lot of you know um, extra padding and rubber whatever the latex but this was skin it was just like skin almost and they'd be very careful gluing it on me but in terms of the um the model the makeup i can't remember how many tests they had to do but uh yeah they kind of knew what they wanted i think from the very beginning can you describe a typical day in the makeup chair for that makeup because that's uh, i find that actually a very very uh, unique look for the entire star trek franchise too it's a, it's a pretty unique looking alien why is that? Because they they don't have all the extra doodads on yeah, it. Yeah, it's. I think the color is pretty unique. The contacts are unique. I mean, most aliens always have the contacts, but in this case, uh, there, it was definitely like a humanoid type alien. But it was so far fetched. It was such an abstraction from a humanoid alien, and still an abstraction without going over the top. Mm. Well, I mean, in terms of makeup, I, I mean, it just. I mean, it was about three, three and a half hours in. You know, just getting into it because um, they had to be so precise, and and if they if the if the thin, it was like, like, ooh, like crep. It was so thin, the stuff. And if they got off a little bit, they had to take it all off because it would, would, would increase, right? You know, when you moved and stuff like that. So it was very, very tricky. And, you know, for me, it's always the contacts. I, I, I wear glasses. I, I, I don't wear contact lenses and these giant contacts. Ooh, th- those were the, the torture for me, you know. Um, and uh, I do remember the skin tight uh, costume. And like, oh, my God. I remember lying lying in my trailer in between shoots, and you do feel like you're like embalmed. It's almost like uh, like a, you're in a torture chamber. And I realized there's and I realized a lot of actors can't do this because it, it freaks you out. You, you feel like you've got to rip it off. You can't breathe, you know. So I just really had to get into meditation and just really just breathe. I'm okay. I'm not trapped. I'm not in like some torture kind of wrap. And I do remember like, boy, you better take a leak before you get into the costume because or, or if you have to go the other r- r- route, you, you're up 
Shit's Creek, so to speak. Because uh, to get out of that costume, all the zippers are behind. You can't do it yourself. So it's embarrassing. You go, oh, I, I have to go potty. Can you unzip me? It's just like, oh, boy. So um, you got to be careful what you eat. Blah, blah, blah. It's, it's quite, the, uh, quite the ordeal. So in that pilot for Enterprise, one of the other main characters who was a guest star in this case was Tiny Lister. He was Klang. He's the very first Klingon we meet in Enterprise. Uh, did you get to hang out with Tiny? He passed away very recently. Uh, but do you have any memories of him offset? I do not remember Tiny. Did I have scenes with Tiny? Kind of, sort of, but not really. It might have been a double that you that did stuff with him. You know, people think like you're seeing all these people, but man, you just see what's right in front of you. And if it, they're not in your scene, you usually don't even, your paths don't cross. It's in and out. Well, tell us a bit more about Scott Bakula then, because I don't really have to talk about him much on the show. I've talked to like one or two people I've gotten to do some scenes with him, but you're having not just scenes, you're getting tussles with him uh, in your farewell episode. You get to be out of the makeup too. Uh, what do you remember about working with Scott? Was he a good scene partner? Oh, he's a great scene partner. Very giving. You know, a lot of times when, you know, the camera, you know, uh, turns on you and they're feeding you lines, a lot of, you know, stars, um, don't give me much, but uh, Scott was always there. I swear it's the theater, you know, training. And he was just kind. And, you know, and you could talk about stuff. You didn't, you know, I, I just felt very open and free with him. Plus, I, I'd seen him do a lot of theater, you know, back in the early days here in L.A. So we had that connection. And I think he appreciated that. And, um yeah, just fun, you know, fun to hang at a cast party with him. You know, it just he felt like he's just a normal guy. Silic and Archer have a ton of fights throughout those episodes together. And I've heard that uh, Scott Bakula is pretty handy. He liked to do his own stunts. Uh, but in the terms of these fight scenes, how often was John Fleck the one actually throwing those punches and jumping around? Well, I, I, I'm pretty physical. And then back then I was even more physical. God, that was like, what, 20 years ago? About, um, so uh, I did, I didn't do a lot of stunts, the bigger stunts, but you know, the fight scenes, I, I try to do as much as I can, but uh, there was always, you know, a good stunt double ready to jump in for me, you know? So uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I've got to ask about working with the one true star of enterprise Porthos. Did you get to hang out with the beagle very much? No, no, I never even met the Beatles. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, you know, he was uh, he wasn't working the day I was working, unfortunately. So in terms of the character's ultimate uh, path, you know, we do get to have a farewell to the character and rewatching again. It felt like it was a little bit rushed and that Silic didn't really get to have his full potential as a character. Uh, what did you think about the way he went out? Well, I think you might be right that it was rushed. I think they probably got an announcement that the season that, you know, the franchise was closing, you know, so they had to wrap it up quickly. Yeah, it's like, whoa, all of a sudden I'm going down to earth and I don't have the makeup anymore, which I appreciated. I didn't have to do the makeup. But but, hey, I was grateful for what I got. I got to have a little uh, moment. man on man so to speak with with scott uh when we weren't fighting uh me and my makeup and uh so that's kind of what i remember uh working late late into the night on the, the paramount set there uh, and uh i don't know I, I do remember just being there and not having i was just so relieved i didn't have to do all the makeup and just thinking you know what this is kind of an actor's dream to be working at you know and hollywood on the paramount studio lot and got a nice scene uh, you know hey life is good uh it was also uh, oh i do remember I, I was also working at carnival during the same time so they had to coordinate shooting schedules and 
you know, I was doing heavy prosthetic makeup on Carnival as Gecko, and I was doing all this heavy prosthetic makeup on 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 um, uh, as Silic, and my skin was starting to burn and flake off from all this makeup removal. So I remember the day when I, at the last shooting day on, um, um, you know, uh, Enterprise, when I didn't have to do the makeup, my skin was all peeling. So they had to do a lot with moisturizer and makeup to make it look like I wasn't, uh, uh, had a bad sunburn. So uh, I do remember that. You were doing like 10 hour makeup days on Carnival, right? Because you were doing like full body prosthetics. Well, well, yeah, that was like, I think, uh, like one of the first episodes of uh, uh, Carnival. And uh, it was, uh, I had a couple full body days. And that would be uh, probably, uh, I, I'd have to show up like about three, four in the morning, you know, for like, a, you know, a, a 10 a.m. shoot. So I, I'd be pretty much in the makeup trailer, you know, for six hours or more. Yeah, yeah, crazy. And then to take it off was another, you know, three or three hours at least. But ka-ching, 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 overtime, baby. I mean, I feel like that's got to be like the main motivator to help you sit through those three hours plus of makeup every time because you did it so many times for Star Trek and other other things. I know, I know. I did uh, have a little calculator in there. Oh, we're in overtime. Oh, we're in golden time. Okay, torture me all you want. So for someone who's had to wear makeup that's oftentimes constricting your eyebrows, a lot of your facial movements, uh, what do you do as an actor to perform still, perform effectively? Well, that's interesting, you know, because it is about you have to, you know, you got to express, you know, create some um, emotion underneath uh, as, as a human to, to to translate beyond the makeup. So, yeah, you got to when I was first starting to do it, they said, you need to be expressive with your muscles, you know, and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's kind of like, I guess, bad acting in a way, if you didn't have the makeup on, cause you know, you don't want to be doing that stuff. But when you do have makeup, you, you gotta kind of just accentuate, I don't know, facial movements and stuff like that. Not, not too extreme, but it has to register, you know? Yeah, it sounds like what you're basically describing. It's very much like a kabuki-ish kind of thing, but you can't be over-the-top kabuki either. It's, it's a right, pretty tough balance. Right. It's got to be grounded in some reality, yeah. But, you know, when you're an alien, what is, what is you know, real? And I don't know. So but you got to use your body. So that's it. So if you could have had creative freedom, if let's say he doesn't die in that last episode we've seen, what would you like for the character to do next? Where would you like him to go? Huh, where would I have liked Sword to go? Well, I like the fact that, you know, he was a shapeshifter. And I, w- I often wish that they had played more with his shapeshifting capabilities. I mean, why not? <laughs> because fun to come back as like some sultry uh, old uh, dame or something. Not that, you know, that would be believable. That's why they never did it. But I always wish I could have shapeshifted into different people, so to speak, and just shapeshifting into me at the end, so to speak. Silic shows up one day as Phyllis Diller. <laughs> that'd be great or margaret hamilton oh god jesus and speaking of by the way star trek enterprise last thing about this too uh you actually have a, an action figure of yourself i do have an action figure actually i got a, a few of them in my little thing here i keep saying well, i'll save them maybe they'll be worth fifty dollars each someday uh I'll sell them on ebay yeah i had a little action figure a lot of cards signed cards oh i was pretty special silic was special I'm a big toy collector. I love asking folks who've got figures in themselves. What do you actually think of it? I mean, do you like the likeness of it? Does it look like you? Are you proud of that toy? I was proud of that toy. And I can see myself. I mean, if nobody else can, I go, oh, well, yeah, 
oh, they're all that big. I see my, my bone structure, my body, my body structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, I thought they did a good job. Yeah. So what would you say then is your most favorite role within Star Trek? Oh, my favorite role in Star Trek. Hmm. Well, just from an acting point of view, that, that one you just mentioned with the courtroom scene, I don't even know what character I played, but uh, I was a Romulan in that, wasn't I? Yeah, yeah, that was the Romulan Cobalt. Yes, yes. I, I, that was one of my favorites, just because I got to act so much. And I, you know, Silic, uh, I, I, excuse me, I loved having, um, you know, uh, uh, the arc. I, I love having an arc in any kind of TV show, just, you know, because then, then a story develops, you know, and I, I get more of an inner life because the writing kind of opens up, you know, my imagination, so to speak. Um, so uh, in the Star Trek thing, you know, I always, the first time working was always a special time with LeVar Burton that time. That that was, you know, a very special time. My first introduction to Star Star Trek land. Um, and I got to say, the end, I guess, Enterprise. I, I wish you know, the story had developed a little bit more, but uh, that, that was special for me, too. Yeah. Because I got a doll. It's the only doll I got. You did. And I need to get one of those signed one day. So hopefully I'll see you at a convention one day and I'm going to get my Silic figure signed by you. Ah. Uh... I'll do it for half price. Oh, nice. That'll be only 80 bucks. Nice. <laughs> for you, nothing, Matthew. <laughs> it's free. Right. So, John, you also have a documentary that's out, but the, the film essentially asks, you know, who John Fleck is. And the title of that film is John Fleck is who you want him to be. So uh, it begs me to have to ask this question. That's who is John Fleck and who do you want John Fleck to be? Oh, boy. You know, Kevin asked me a question. It just came out and that's what he edited and named the piece, you know. Who are you, John? Like, well, I'm whoever you want me to be. I mean, spoken like a true actor, you know. Who do you want me to be? How much do you want to pay me to do it? Who do I want John Fleck to be? I am searching for creative synergy, creative spirituality. That that is who I want to be. I don't want to base my life on uh, on TV roles, on film roles, on how much money and and you know this PR game that oh I got to have more and more and more. I am searching to be of service to the world. And I think by being creative and being honest and expressing myself and showing various ways of being expressive, that, that it, it can be a, um, a healing and, and, and spiritually connecting tool for, for all of, for all of us. So, but, but selfishly, mostly for myself, I, I just feel that if I open my, um, my my expressive being that uh it just it saves me from uh <laughs> shutting down and digging a hole and wanting to run away from life as it's presenting itself right now well you definitely had quite a journey in life and through your art using that to interpret all the different experiences you've had so thank you for that gift you've given all of us uh whether some folks can handle it or not that's a different story for another day but yeah, thank you for putting it out there and, and basically you know also hey, it ain't for everybody my work i always say it ain't for everybody but hey that's Life, you know? But all art is personal to some degree anyway, and if somebody can even get a little bit out of that, I mean, that's still a victory. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I, I got I got five fans that are diehard fans in, in life. That's good enough for me. And you're one of them now. I got six. You got six now. <laughs> throw, throw seven. I'll have my girlfriend in there too. <laughs> Yay! Seven. All right, that's a lot of royalty money right there. All right. So, <laughs> last question of the day, John. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Well, the best thing about being part of the Star Trek universe is that I get to talk to to young fellows like you that is keeping the universe uh, alive, you know? 
um, boy, I, I who knew while I was doing all these roles over the, all these decades that it was such a phenom. I mean, it's truly an honor. You know, the fact that I'm like one of three actors to have played as many roles in this, you know, I poo pooed it, you know, when I was doing it a lot of the times, you know, because, oh, I'm not a human being. I'm playing alien. But boy, um, well, what a blessing. One of, one of the greatest blessings of my life. And, uh, and every time I get a residual check, I'm, I say, thank you. Thank you, Rick Berman. Thank you. Star Trek. Exactly. Um, so, um, you know, hey, who knew Star Trek would be such a force, you know, in, in the world? I mean, there'd be no Star Wars without Star Trek. There'd, I don't know. It's just, there'd be no Avengers. There'd be no Iron Man, I think, with, without it. I don't know. Or maybe I'm getting ahead of myself or behind myself but anyways i am just uh i'm honored to uh that you asked me for this interview and uh that the, the hey the, the universe still lives on and fingers crossed maybe we'll see john fleck show up sometime in uh, strange new world or discovery or section 31 hey you never know hope springs eternal well john thank you so much today for sharing so much your stories so much your time with us today uh, i could easily talk to you for hours about everything else you've done because you've got such a prolific career and it's always great to talk to someone who's also in the fine arts world too it's a different perspective from things and hopefully we can get you back on another day and talk a bit more in depth about all those things but uh for today at least you know thank you so much for talking about all the star trek things with us and uh i'm glad i could also refresh your memory in some of these things <laughs> boy you certainly did refresh my memory yeah you know more about my memory than i do so thank you my job to know these things <laughs> yes well, thank you, Dr. Matthew. I appreciate it. Clothing going where no man did go before. Thank you. And that was our chat with artist extraordinaire John Fleck. And now you hopefully understand my comments from the top of the show about him being a force of nature. I feel like during the time we spent doing this episode together, we only just began to peel away the layers and find the core of who John Fleck is. But then again, I get the feeling that there's always going to be more to him than meets the eye. I hope I can get a second chance to talk with him sometime and see what else we can discover about his time on Trek, his art, and just who exactly John Fleck wants to be. And I want to also add here, John sent me an email afterwards and wanted me to add this note to a thought we had discussed during the show. And that was about his motivation for playing the part of Silic. John said he imagined him as one of a dying breed of aliens whose world was destroyed by a civil war that left only a few of his people alive. John considered the mission of his character to steal Enterprise to be just a part of a plan to gain valuable life-saving technology to save his species, but his mission was always foiled by his own vanity and desire to prove that the Sulaban were more intelligent than the humans. In trying to get this ultimate victory over those humans, he kept causing his own defeat and, in turn, the downfall of his own species. And that's a pretty powerful way to look at this character who I think deserved a lot more than he got in the series. Despite the fact that Silica and his race of aliens appeared in so many episodes of Star Trek, I feel like they really weren't ultimately fleshed out as much as they could have been, and I especially believe that Silica deserved a much better death than what he got in the series. There was so much more to explore about all of their stories, and sadly with Enterprise ending after Season 4, well, a lot of questions were left unanswered. With that said, I'd love to know your thoughts about John Fleck's character and the Sulevan, because we don't really talk about Enterprise enough on this show. And I think these villains of Archer and the crew were quite interesting to look at. So go ahead, hit me up on social media and tell me what you guys think about Silic and the Suliban. And by the way, there are links to Kevin Duffy's documentary about John Fleck in the show notes. So go ahead and make sure you check that out and give it a watch. It's currently available on Vimeo. And as it goes on to more platforms, we will update the show notes to reflect that. 
But really, the main thing here is you've got to help support a member of the Star Trek family. And I think it's a truly fascinating exploration of an actor and an artist who deserves to be dug deeper into to better understand what he does and the motivations behind his work, because there's clearly a lot to him. And I'm also going to include a link to my documentary, Nothing Changes, which is what John was mentioning when we were talking about some art docs earlier on in this interview. After he sent me his doc, I sent him mine, and we had some nice chats about films and things like that. And my film definitely gave him some new thoughts and some new approaches to his way of looking at art and his life. So if that's something you might have interest in too, go ahead and check that out in the show notes as well. So that wraps up this week's episode of Trek Untold. Thank you so much for checking it out this week. Please make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, at Trek Untold. It's the best way to get updates on guests, check out all the memes and other things that we're posting, and interact with myself and other Star Trek fans. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show. Or check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to check out some of our merchandise. If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.